Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we have a couple of things going on. We have Shabbat Agadol, which has its own Haftarah. We have Parshat Tzav, where we're in the regular um, lectionary, the, re- the regular reading for this week is Tzav, which, which is continuing um, to talk about the instructions for sacrifices for the people uh, and uh, the instructions of what the priests are supposed to do regarding those sacrifices. Um, our triennial division puts us at the Shlamim offering. And Tzav has its own Haftarah. Uh, which is from the book of Jeremiah. And we're actually going to look at that today because Judith Ubik is always asking me why we don't study the prophets and why we don't look at, at the prophets. Um, so it's actually, um, it's actually instructive this week to look uh, at, at the prophets and I'll, and I'll explain more when we get there. Um, remember that Haftarah does not mean half Torah, which is a very sad mistake that people make. Um, Haftarah comes from the Hebrew verb lifater, to conclude. Lifater, to conclude. Haftarah, conclusion, meaning the final reading. So the rabbis added a reading um, from something that is not from the five books to every Torah portion. That reading either highlights something about the Torah portion or, as we're going to see today, contradicts without contradicting, God forbid, contradicts something that's, uh, you know, that challenges something in the Torah portion. Uh, and that's really what's going to happen with Jeremiah today. And, and we'll look closely at that. Um, okay, so let's jump in then to Tzav. Let's jump into the Torah text, because that's always where we start. Okay, so that means Leviticus 7, verse 11 so we're going to look at the Shlamim offering, um, often called the, uh, and here it is in JPS, uh, translated as the sacrifice of well-being. Um, it, it's not wrong. God forbid JPS should be wrong. It's not wrong. It just isn't, it isn't the best translation for me. Having studied a lot about this offering, um, really it's about, Shalom. When you greet someone, you ask after their shalom, right? Mashlomcha, mashlomech. What's with your shalom? That's how you ask, how are you, when you greet someone in Hebrew, still to this day. So you ask after someone's shalom. The shlamim offering is somebody coming to God and essentially doing that, saying, mashlomcha, like, what's up? How are you? Um, it's a greeting because what you're doing is you're this person is just coming to be with the divine, coming to korban. We know the word for um, for cor- for sacrifice is about drawing close. So, and this is this is the offering that people eat. So, if you want to eat meat, this is the offering you bring as a shlamim. Remember the Holocaust. The olah is completely burned on the altar. The priests are fed largely out of uh, many of the other sacrifices. Shlamim is where the Israelite gets most of the animal. This is the offering that is really about an Israelite wanting to just come be with God and then have a huge meal um, with the clan afterwards. So there's lots of reasons people would want to do that. So because things are going well and they want to hang out because otherwise 
you'd bring a chatat, uh, you know, a sin offering or something else. But you, um, and we talked about chatat maybe just being about purification. With the shlamim, things are assumed to be going well, and it's often an offering of gratitude. All right. So what is the Torah of Shlamim? Here's the Torah. We get this language a lot. Here's the instruction. Torah means instruction. Here's the instruction about the Shlamim sacrifice. Asher yakriv la'adonai, that you're going to bring close to Yudhe that you're going to sacrifice to Yudhe If it's for a Thanksgiving, Todah, then the person offers it together with the sacrifice of Thanksgiving, unleavened cakes, with oil mixed in, unleavened wafers spread with oil, and cakes of choice flour with oil mixed in, well soaked. This offering with cakes of leavened bread added, he shall offer along with his Thanksgiving sacrifice of well-being. Out of this, he shall offer one of each kind as a gift to Yodhe It shall go to the priest who dashes the blood of the offering of well-being or of greeting. And the flesh of his thanksgiving offering, sacrifice of shlamim, shall be eaten on the day that it is offered. None of it shall be set aside until morning. They did not have freezers. They did not have refrigerators. So it meant you had to eat the whole animal. The whole thing has to be eaten. It can't be put aside till morning. So that means you're feeding a lot of people, presumably. I mean, unless you have a huge appetite, and can eat that much meat, you are feeding a lot of people. So this was an opportunity for the village, you know, your clan, your tribe to eat uh, well that night. Cause remember meat was very expensive for them. Um, it was an incredibly important source of protein. Um, but in the ancient world, you know, meat protein made up about 20% of the diet, 80% um, was other stuff. So, so it's, a, it's a very expensive meal. And so this makes a really nice dinner for everybody. If, however, the sacrifice he offers is a votive or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice and what is left of it shall be eaten on the morrow. So if you bring a free will offering, a votive offering, then you can, the, everyone can eat it tonight and tomorrow to finish it. What is then left of the flesh of the sacrifice shall be consumed in fire on the third day. So whatever is left of the third day becomes um, unpermitted. It is taboo. And so it must be burned on the altar. If any of the flesh of his sacrifice of Shlamim is eaten on the third day, it shall not be acceptable. It shall not count for him who offered it. It is an offensive thing. And the person who eats of it shall bear his guilt. So this means that if anyone does violate the law of eating it on the third day, meaning you're greedy and you want to keep it for yourself. And so you're going to eat it for as long as you can, then it it immediately negates the sacrifice. It means the sacrifice doesn't work. um, If you violate the laws of how it's supposed to be offered and eaten flesh that touches anything tame shall not be eaten. So anything that is impure, flesh that touches anything impure shall not be eaten. It shall be consumed in fire. As for other flesh, only he who is clean may eat such flesh. So now we're, we're, we're into the category of tame and tahor, impure and pure. We know this language. We've seen this language a lot. 
um, that if you're going to eat of the sacrifice, you have to be in a state of ritual purity. Because remember, impurity means you are dysregular, meaning you're not participating in ritual as usual. That's part of the definition of being tame. But the person who is in a state of being tame, impure, who eats flesh from God's sacrifices of shlamim, that person shall be cut off from his kin. So um, we're not sure exactly what this means. Uh, it could mean this person dies a premature death um, before they were supposed to die. Um, others say something will happen to this person's descendants and will cut this person off from their people, meaning there won't be any descendants to connect them directly to the people. Some people want to say it, the rabbis want to see this as more of a spiritual punishment um, that you are separated somehow from, from the, from the people of Israel in in some kind of other worldly sense, but we, we, we don't know. Um, but what we know is it seems to be a punishment that you can't prove. So, right. It, so it's scary because if I say, if you do this, you're left hand will turn green, then every time someone does this and their left hand doesn't turn green, it's, it argues against the, the punishment being real. But if you make the punishment something invisible, right, then, right, then it's scarier, I think, somehow, because it can't be disproved. When a person touches anything tame, be it human impurity or uh, an impure animal or any unclean, any impure um, living thing and eats flesh from God's shlamim offerings, that person will be cut off from their kin. Um, and God said to Moshe, speak to the Israelite people. You shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat fat from animals that died or were torn by beasts may be put to any use, but you must not eat it. So you'll see the word trefa, trefe, torn. So that's really where trefe comes from. This idea of it not being kasher, it is trefa. Uh, it is torn um, by by other animals. In Hebrew, one of the ways you say crazy is metuaf, like the, your brain's been torn um, somehow. Uh, all right. So we know we know that we're not supposed to eat blood of bird or of animal, right? At all, you can't eat the life force. Anyone who eats blood shall be cut off from his kin. So this is why, still to this day, kosher meat is soaked and salted. So. God says to Moshe, the offering uh, to Yudhe from a sacrifice of Shlamim must be presented by him who offers his sacrifice of well-being. Because what's the point? If you're trying to come close to God, how would you do that if it's not you offering it? His own hands shall present God's offerings by fire. He shall present the fat with the breast, the breast to be elevated as an elevation offering before Yudhe The priest shall turn the fat into smoke on the altar and the breast shall go to Aaron and his sons. So the fat goes to God because that's the stuff that smells good. That's also the source of a lot of calories. So it's a lot. That was that was a precious part of the meat that that you would want to consume in the ancient world because it's got all those amazing calories. But that's davka given to God because it's part of the best part of the offering. The breast goes to Aaron and his sons and the right thigh from the sacrifices of Shlamim will go to the priest as a gift. He from among Aaron's sons who offers the blood and the fat of the offering of Shlamim shall get the right thigh as his portion. So, so later in the temple system, whoever's offering the sacrifice, whoever's on duty, 
during that sacrifice gets that meat. So when you get too many priests, what happens? <laughs> right? You start to have competition for who gets to be on duty because that's who gets the T-bone. That's who gets filet mignon and are the people who are on duty. So then you have stiff competition for who gets to serve and how often and when and how long. And we know this from the record that this happened uh, as a matter of fact. All right. Uh, For I have taken the breast of elevation offering and the thigh of gift offering from the Israelites, from their sacrifices of Shlamim and given them to Aaron, the priest and to his sons as their due from the Israelites for all time. Okay. So I think this is where we're going to stop. Oh, we're going to finish this out. So the, those shall be the prerequisites of Aaron and his sons from God's offerings by fire once they've been inducted to serve Yudhe as priests. Yudhe commanded these to be given to them once they've been anointed as a due from the Israelites for all time throughout the ages. Such are the rituals of the burnt offering, the meal offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the offering of ordination, and the sacrifice of well-being, with which God charged Moshe on, on Har Sinai when God commanded that the Israelites present their offerings to yud in the wilderness of Sinai. All right. So we just got a lot of instruction, and we've been going through a lot of instruction. So this is like an, another chapter of instruction. Um, and so we've been going details, 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 details. Okay. So let's go to, to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is writing around the fall of the first temple. Jeremiah is writing in response to the situation um, that leads to the Babylonian exile. So, so let's see what Jeremiah has to say here, and then we'll talk about it. Assuredly, thus says Yudhe Vavhe, right? Adonai. Here we have Adonai Yodhevavhe. My wrath and my fury will be poured out upon this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and the fruit of the soil. It shall burn with none to quench it. Koamar Adonai. So thus says Yodhevavhe, Svaot of hosts, the God of Israel. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat! Exclamation point. What the heck does that mean? This. This is an insult to the sacrificial system. This is an insult to Israel who are bringing sacrifices and Jeremiah is critical. So how does he criticize them and the priests? Add your, the Ola, add the Holocaust to your other sacrifices and go ahead and eat it. Remember, the Ola is supposed to be completely consumed on the altar. So how does Jeremiah really criticize the priests and the people? Go ahead and eat the Holocaust. What the hell difference does it make, says God? When I freed your fathers from the land of Egypt, I did not speak with them or command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifice. Burnt offerings here is Ola, right? The Holocaust. I did not speak to them or command them regarding the Holocaust or sacrifice. But this is what I commanded them. Do my bidding that I may be your God and you may be my people. Walk only in the way that I enjoin upon you that it may go well with you. Yet they did not listen or give ear. They followed their own counsels, the willfulness of their evil hearts. They have gone backward, not forward. 
from the day your fathers left the land of Egypt until today. And though I kept sending all my servants, the prophets to them daily and persistently, lo shama'u, they would not listen to me. Lo shama'u, or give ear. They stiffened their necks. They acted worse than their fathers, meaning their ancestors. You shall say all these things to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not respond to you. Then say to them, this is the nation that would not obey yod their God, that would not accept rebuke. Faithfulness has perished, vanished from their mouths. Shear your locks and cast them away. Take up a lament on the heights for yod is spurned and cast off the brood that provoked God's wrath. For the people of Judah have done what displeases me, declares Yotevavhe. They have set up their abominations in the house which is called by my name, and they have defiled it. All right. So this, so this is Jeremiah who is upset, um, and is telling the people that God is upset with them. Why? Because they are misbehaving. Because they are not following uh, God's laws and God's instructions. And so what does your sacrifice mean then? Go ahead and eat it. Eat the Ola. It, it, I don't want it because sacrifice is not that important to me. I didn't tell your ancestors about that right away when I brought them out of Egypt. What I told them was behave in ways that are in line with being my people. And they didn't do that. So what do I care about these stupid sacrifices that mean absolutely nothing? So this is the this is Jeremiah's response to a corruption of morals and ethics in the people, in the in the system, in the priesthood um, that that in his mind leads to the destruction of the temple. If you chase God's presence out of the temple, what's going to happen? It's an empty building and the Babylonians can come get it Um, because God's presence isn't there. God's protection isn't there because uh, the people have completely lost their way. All right, Judith, you wanted to say something? Yes, I did. Uh, is this the beginning of the end of of sacrifices? This is the first commentary we get on what are all these sacrifices about anyway? You don't need them. The sacrifices in your behavior, not in meat on the barbecue. So <clears throat> two things. It, it's it's hard to know cause and effect exactly. There is a pushback by the prophets. Yes, starting even in the first temple, as we see here, there's a pushback against a system and, and lifting up instead behavior. What, how are people behaving rather than sacrifice? But it's back and forth. So the prophets are pushing, the priests push back. And, and the people push back by, by not behaving, right? They, they push back as well. But what ultimately decides the end of sacrifice is the destruction of the second temple. That's what decides the end of sacrifice. Would it have died out already? I mean, would it have died out anyway? We don't know. You know, would the priests have been um, overturned in terms of their power and, you know, the, the folks who really wanted something else, you know, a different kind of system, would they have been victorious in the end? We don't know. History made the decision. History settled the argument. Once the second temple was destroyed, there is no more sacrifice. And now the rabbis can have their heyday and say, it's the altar of the heart and we offer 
Instead, <laughs> words of prayer and, you know, the meditations of our heart is what we offer on the altar um, every day, three times a day, just like they would have in the temple, an extra, an extra service on Shabbat and Yom Tov. And when Jeremiah speaks of the Holocaust, He's not talking about Shoah. He's talking about the no, fall of first, about the first temple. He's talking about the sacrifice. Oh, okay. He's talking about sacrifice. He said he's saying God did. I didn't instruct them about mm-hmm. about the Ola and the Zeva. I, I didn't talk about that with them when I took them out of Egypt. I took I took you out of Egypt, Liot Lachem Elohim, to be your God for you to be Am Kadosh, my people, right? Am Segula, a, a precious people that is special to God. And you, that's what I talked to them about, not about this business of sacrifice. And that's all y'all focus on. Okay. Right. And Isaiah, we read this on Yom Kippur from Isaiah, right. That who says, is this what I want? Your sacrifices? No, I want you to, you know, break the chains (laughs) of the oppressed and, you know, take care of the needy and the widow and the orphan. That's what I want from you, not your stupid sacrifices. So the prophets are always ranting and raving about how the people and the priesthood has put sacrifice and, and, and all ritual really, right. Way high. And we're going to see what Yitz Greenberg has to say about it in a way, manipulating God. Like forget what I'm doing in my business dealings. If I just bring a Shlamim offering because I'm grateful for all the great business I'm having, I'm okay. Right. And the prophets are saying, no, (laughs) why are you bringing a Shlamim? Because your business is doing really well. Are you doing corrupt business deals? Well, then you can't just bring a shlamim and you can't bring a sin offering because that sin is on purpose and you can't get forgiven by a sacrifice for an on purpose sin. Right. So, so this is the tension and this is the struggle ritual versus intention, how one lives, ethics, morals, values. And that's the job of the prophets basically to contradict and fight. Yeah. Thank you. Against the system. Yes. All right. So other people want to say something. Bob, enjoy. Uh, you, here. you want yeah, to say something? Let me see if I understand this historically. The Torah is written by individuals later than the time that they were in the desert. Yes. Um, so that's known by the prophet. That must be understood by the prophets. So are the prophets and the what is the time relationship between Jeremiah and the people who were writing the Torah? Because it seems that they're at somewhat at odds. So it, it depends on whether, first of all, so it's not individuals writing the Torah, it's individual sources, schools of thought. So the P author, Leviticus is P, the priestly author. Scholars are still arguing about whether P is early or late. There's a huge scholarly debate about when P is written, but the, but the, the prophets do not understand. The prophets are fine with the Torah. They don't have a problem with the Torah. God forbid. The prophets are fine with this being divine law and the will of God. They have no problem with that. They're not going to talk about J E P and D different sources that put this together. God forbid for them. Torah's at Sinai through Moshe Fine. That's all fine. But what they're going to do is use different parts of Torah to push back against the importance of the sacrificial system. 
they're not challenging the sacrificial system, right? So if I overstated the case, I misspoke. They are challenging the people's and the priests' attachment to sacrifice being the primary concern of the divine and of sacrifice being the primary relationship of the people to God. The prophets are saying, yeah, bring your sacrifice. That's fine. But that's a technicality. What's really important is how you live your life, how you behave, how you talk to your children, how you treat your employees, how you vote, right? Are you going to vote for, for Medicaid for all or not, or not? Like, are you taking care of the widow and the orphan in the ways that you think best? That's what the prophets are saying gets neglected with the hyper focus on the temple ritual. And as part of that, the sacrificial system. So, so uh, 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 <laughs> and the brain shuts down. And sometimes I start thinking faster than I can talk. So the, an example today might be people who are very, very, very observant. They won't eat anything that doesn't have the most strict texture. They won't eat in a restaurant because it's not kosher enough. They won't drive on Shabbos, not even if their wife is in labor. The cab can take her, but he'll walk to the hospital. Like it's like, so people who are seriously machmir, who are very, very strident in their observance and then treat people like garbage. Okay. And are terrible people and are bitter and angry and abusive and oppressive and vote for terrible, terrible policies that, that, that make the rich richer and the poor poorer and limit access to, you know, education for poor kids. So that is exactly what the priests are talking about. No one is suggesting you should break Shabbos, God forbid. No one is saying you should not keep kosher, God forbid. But the focus, the hyper focus on observing the rituals and then ignoring how you live your life, the prophets are saying that's wrong. Because what you're doing is trying to manipulate God, essentially. Yeah? I have, I have uh, two comments. Okay. Uh, one is just with respect to what you just said. I assume you're not saying that all people who are very observant. Or, uh, come on, of course I, not. No, I, 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 no, I know that. I, I want to make yeah. that clear. No, of course I'm not that saying someone, that. Right, right. Of course, that someone is, a, people can be observant and wonderful people, and of they can course. also be observant and horrible the, the people. The priests aren't worried about that. Absolutely. I mean, for the priests, the prophets are fine. If you want to bring sacrifices all the day long, gazunta, hey, as long as you're feeding the poor, right? And taking care of the vulnerable. And so, yeah, bring all your sacrifices you want. That's not the problem. The problem is a disconnect. Mm -mm. That's what they're lifting up all the time. So my other question has to do with Shoah, which we use it and we use Holocaust for the offering how did that become the name of what happened to Jews in Germany? I mean, I know there's some connection, but there's another level that the Holocaust offering was a way to get closer to God. And I'm not sure, certainly I wouldn't argue that what happened in Germany was helping people getting closer well, to God. So you just answered your own question. So the, 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 the reason we use Shoah is because it is not Holocaust. Shoah does not mean Holocaust. It means the catastrophe. So, so the people who started using the term Holocaust were also looking for 
how could this happen? If we believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing God, how could this possibly happen? Well, sacrifice was people being burned. Uh, people, sorry. Was animals, living beings being burned as an offering to God. And so there was this move, which is a horrible move, to say, well, these are human sacrifices. These people got burned up and it was b'shem Hashem. It was... It was sanctifying the divine name and they died as martyrs so that their death became somehow meaningful if they were martyrs. And it's, and it's a, it's a, it's a nuance. I, and I, cause I don't want to, I don't want to be critical of some people who, who really are attached to this idea of martyrdom. I don't want to take away from people's finding any kind of meaning in martyrdom. If they do, that's fine. There was a there was a need to do something to write to answer this horrifying question. How could this happen? And so there's a there's a move. You either have to say, well, there isn't a God who could have stopped it. There isn't a God involved in any of this, which I'm fine saying because I don't believe in a supernatural God. So it's fine for me, but not for people who wanted to retain some notion of God as having some kind of power in the world. And for them. These these victims who are burned become martyrs, and in that sense, are like the Holocaust offering. I don't I don't make that move, right? I, that's not my move. I am much more Rubenstein, the death of God. Like you know, the Holocaust is what proves to me that there is not an all knowing, all powerful being. Because if there were, and this was something that that God was ready to do to anybody. I want nothing to do with that God. But other people are not ready to make that move. They, they need to retain a God that thinks and makes decisions and acts. And if you do that and look at the show eye in the face, you have a real problem. And that's one theological answer. And it's why we don't, it's why I don't use the term Holocaust unless I have to, uh, in terms of talking about the Shoah, right? I talk about the Shoah much more because that language of Holocaust really bothers me. Barry? I just want to say that the Holocaust comes from uh, Greek, and it means to burn holy, or to, to holy to burn entirely the entire animal which is sacrificed. Uh, and I think that's where the term came for the Shoah: the people were, you know, consumed by fire. Uh, but I, I understand why this, the term is uh, inadequate. So, uh, but when you use Shoah, not, not many people understand so it's a right not many people know what that what you know what what holocaust means in terms of the theological you know the theological yeah. problems and you also have this you know intentional industrial element into it that adds, you know the, the fact that people were burning these animals intentionally to make the world the world better that was the intention of the people who did this Yes. Um, yes. So that's why it does make sense in a way. Right. That, so, yeah, you just gave us another reason why it's so bad <laughs> right? to have that term be used. Right. Right. Because this is a good this is a good thing. This this makes the world better, you know, by burning these people. Right. That's what the Nazis believe. They believe no, they were making the world better. They still do. Right? They still they still think. Right. Kill them and eat them for lunch. Isn't that what that guy said? 
you know, who was who marched on the Capitol, you know, I would kill every Jew and eat them for lunch. Lovely, lovely. Um, and I'm sure handicapped people and gay people are not exempt from his special attention. So, um, David, did you want to say something? Uh, Amy, could you just take a moment and describe who these prophets are? What gives them the standing? Are they from certain sects? Do they represent a dissident group? I just have no understanding of why Jeremiah has any authority to comment and why we study Jeremiah or Isaiah or anybody else. Um, Yeah, so they are schools of thought represented by um, often a charismatic spokesperson um, who is, so think about any, how does any preacher, teacher gain status? Like look at Joel Osteen. Like I listen to Joel Osteen and I go, okay, I don't get it. (laughs) Like, yes, it's, it's motivational, I suppose, but it's also like, like cotton candy. And, and he's so massively popular. He fills stadiums. Like he fills all these venues and he's, you know, wealthier than whatever. Like he's, and he's super influential and it's like, okay, how does that happen? I don't know. People are charismatic. Some people like the message. Some people were angry. So why were there, you know, marching in the streets this summer, right? It it was against the injustice of the system and people have had enough. So there are many people who had had enough of the priests controlling everything of, you know, everything has to be these, these expensive offerings. And they were, and they saw the corruption and they saw, and they, they were, and they saw what was happening in their lives and and it was difficult. Life was hard in 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 ancient Israel. So um so they're frustrated, and they follow a Jeremiah because they they like what he has to say. It's Look a at Trump movement, you know. Essentially, it's politics. Um. So you know. So there's arguments about whether these are people or or schools of thought. Mm. People want to argue he was a prophet. God touched him specially, and he had the word of God. Okay, I don't buy it. Obviously, that's not my theology. Um, was he inspired? Obviously, <laughs> did, did he have, did he feel he was preaching a religious politics? Yes. Um, is it but, is but it something that moves what me? System, yeah. What system then put all of these prophets together? Amos. Uh, no system puts all of them together. There are early prophets and late prophets. They come from different places. Ezra was a priest. Nehemiah was a, a, a scribe. I mean, it, so they, they come from, they, it depends on the time. There's a huge time span between the early prophets and the later prophets. And they're worried about different things and they're concerned about different things. Um, but usually it's about some source, some sense of a violation of justice you know, and, and morality and ethics that they feel is being ignored. That part of the Torah is being ignored. And instead, right, you've got a focus on fill in the blank. It depends on what they're concerned about. Um, well, but they, well, they, we sometimes say a prophet can foretell the future. That is not the sense of our prophet. It's not about what's going to happen in the future other than if you don't change, then, you know, this is what's going to happen. If, if you don't turn this around, Israel, you're going to get schmiced. And then they get schmiced. <laughs> but um, the, 
And, you know, this is what Micha Goodman was teaching us when he talked about, about um, what's his chops, the prophet, um, the one who goes to Nineveh, the one who doesn't want to go to Nineveh and Jonah. get swallowed. Thank you. So Jonah, like part of the question is, why doesn't Jonah want to do what God says? Why doesn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh and, and, and preach and be a prophet to Nineveh so that Nineveh doesn't get destroyed? And Micha Goodman's answer is because if a prophet is successful, the people do tshuva. The people repent and they're forgiven and they're not destroyed. And Jonah was afraid he would be successful in Nineveh and then they wouldn't get destroyed. And he wanted them destroyed. He wanted them punished. So he's a reluctant prophet because he was afraid he might be successful. And he was. Nineveh repents and is not destroyed. Right? So, so our prophets are not successful. <laughs> the people do not change. So someone says, so what, and so David asked, why do we study them? Because we canonized our critics. Because the attachment to what the prophets were saying didn't go away. And you can take any of the, these prophets, put their words next to any articles being written, you know, by certain parts of our society today, and they would line up completely. Right? What's the criticism right now? That the rich are too rich, the poor are too poor, the powerful are too powerful, and they stomp on the weak? Well, that nothing changes, right? The prophets are just as accurate today as they were in their own time, because what they're arguing is that human nature is such that people who have control don't want to give it up, and they people of power don't want to share it, and that we are greedy, and that we focus on what we can get and how much we can get, and even if that means other people won't have. That message is eternal. It doesn't change. The same way Torah's message is eternal, right? Many parts of it. Same with, um, I believe, uh, the prophets. Yes, Carol. Uh, this is a little off the subject, but I would like to hear your comment on it. Okay. It's about scapegoating. Yeah. I'm going to read what I have here. The term is derived from an ancient Israeli ritual in which a goat would be symbolically burdened with the sins of the people and then driven away into the wilderness, carrying off all their misdeeds. Yes. And supposedly that's where the word scapegoating came from. And that Correct. was in Leviticus. Correct. What's yes. what your question? I just found it fascinating. I had never heard that before about so where the term scapegoating came from. There are two goats. One goes to Azazel and one is killed. So um, the priest it draws lots to determine which is which. And the goat that goes to Azazel is sent out. The priest puts his hands on the goat, transfers all the sins of Israel onto the goat and sends it out to Azazel. There, we could talk for a long time about what Azazel means. What is it? Is it a place? Is it a demon god? You know, the anti-god that, that this goat gets sent to, we're not sure, but presumably it will die. Um, and then it takes all the sins of Israel with it. So, so Israel doesn't have to bear the guilt. And so that's what scapegoating is is that you put it on somebody else, something else, so you don't have to take ownership or responsibility. So that's how the term links up. Um, and we, we read a lot of uh, places, read this text on Yom Kippur. Thank this you. Is part of the, 
Torah text. Yeah, sure. David? Uh, Amy, just to return back to the prophets, uh, just hypothetically, why isn't Jonathan Sachs a prophet? Why isn't uh, Yitz Greenberg a prophet? When did the era end when we stopped dignifying those that are prophets as prophets and everybody else is a commentator? Um, so that would be after the last of the latter prophets. And because at some point they cap it. It's just like the Torah. When do you stop canonizing texts? At some point it's capped and it's like prophecy has ended. Prophecy has ended for Israel. God doesn't talk through human beings the same way anymore. But but to your question, and I mean this with my whole heart, Jonathan Sachs was a prophet. If right, if we're going to use the term someone inspired by the divine to bring us up short, but also loves us, that was that was Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of blessed, blessed memory for sure. Heschel, you know, like so many of our critics that love us and want us to change and are deeply connected to a sense that this is our holy mission, um, that we are created in the image of the divine and need to live into that. Those for me remain prophets. But the word prophet in our tradition, um, and Mehmet says Kaplan was a prophet as well. I 100% agree. Um, But the word prophet because it used to mean someone who had direct contact with God and was speaking the word of God. Like that's, that shifts. So I, I wouldn't use prophet in that sense because I don't believe in a God that talks. So, but I do believe that they were deeply connected to that energy that I call godliness and that they were on fire with love for this people and concern for our world and really truly believed that to pull the divine into this world was to challenge how we're behaving and what our priorities are. And in that sense, yes, I would, I would use the word prophet for them. So Um, what you're saying is if I wanted to nominate Mehmet as a prophet, it's done. There's, there's no organization that's, so it dignifies. There's no prophetic system anymore. But if you look like in the in the Hasidic world, you know, the Rebbe has magical powers. Who decides the Rebbe has all these magical healing powers? Or if crumbs fall from the Rebbe's mouth, you should eat them because, you know, they're somehow special. The people decide that, <laughs> right? People, people who are impacted by this person are the ones who decide how important somebody becomes right unless you have a system where okay i pick you and i'm the kingmaker that's different but we don't in most places we don't well and some some people would argue the hasidic system is a dynastic system and so you know there's a dynasty so already the son of the rebbe you know has standing systemically that he's got to really mess it up to not get you know the position of rebbe but but that's a different conversation judith Thank you so much for answering completely why we don't study the prophets more. Because actually, when you've read one, you've sort of read them all. They all have the same kind of message. They, they do. And, and, and actually, I, you know, so I'm going to try to bring more of that voice forward um, so that, you know, you're exposed more to, to that. And so I, I, I promise that I will be on the lookout for ways. Meaning, but you really explained it perfectly. It's, it's kind of like y'all are screwing up and you're going to get schmeist. <laughs> that, that's essentially the, the message. George? I'm sorry you brought that up. <laughs> yeah, right. George? There's an extreme, uh, my understanding is there's an extreme sect in Israel that uh, 
uh, for explains the Holocaust as as um, uh, punishment for the sins that the Jews have created by not following the strict laws. So my question, if that's basically true for the sect, now, uh, right. uh, does that mean that that sect of Orthodox Jews rejects the prophets completely? No. No, no, no. Why are they mutually exclusive? Oh, because the punishment aspect, that not following the rules, the extreme, the the rules uh, are sins, and we get punished for not following them. So the prophets were right. It proves the prophets were right. Yes, yes. They were right. They told you so. They told you, and you didn't listen. And look what happened. Six million. That's that's the cost. Six million. Because you didn't follow the rules. Right. So that... That proves the prophet's right. It proves the prophet's right. The prophets say, get your act together. Your priorities are out of whack. You're not following the real laws of Torah. So you're going to get schmeist. That's exactly what happened in the Holocaust, says that thinking. Y'all weren't keeping Shabbos. Y'all weren't giving tzedakah. Y'all weren't learning Torah. So of course you're going to get murdered. What did you think was going to happen? No, but I thought then that the prophets were saying that that's not the important part. The important part... Oh, now now you're talking about an argument. The rabbis are going to say this is the important part, not the sacrifices. It's studying Torah. It's keeping Shabbos. Right. So so this this sect then is disagreeing. No, no, George, they are interpreting the prophets to say the temple sacrificial system is not the place to focus. It's in your home. It's in how you live your life. Those laws, and those laws are the ones that stand after the temple. Don't focus on the temple and the priesthood and the animals that you're giving. Focus on Shabbos. Do you see what I'm saying? They interpret the prophets to be leaning into the part of Torah that is not about the temple cult. Once the temple cult is gone, you better be keeping the rest of it because that's what the prophets cared about, say those people. That you're talking about. Listen to the prophets. The prophets want you keeping Shabbos. And they want you giving tzedakah. And they want you studying Torah. That's what you should have been doing all along, not sacrificing. I'm not communicating this very well. Well, I'm not understanding it well because... All right, so you you have a system... Okay, let's, let's, let's pretend. Let's pretend we're talking about banking. Money. Focus on money. I'm going to give money, money, money. I'm going to money, 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 money. The prophets are saying, fine, give your money. Money is important. Yes. Be philanthropic. Absolutely. Money equals temple. Give your money. Give your gifts to the JCC. Give your gifts to, to the Mazon. That's great. And that's all people were doing was giving money and then calling it good. I'm a good Israelite because I gave my money to Federation. And they're going to take care of everybody. I'm giving my money. Money, 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 money. The prophets are saying, yes, give your money. That does not clear you from behaving ethically and morally in every other aspect of your life. How do you treat your wife? How do you treat your kids? How come the people from down the street from you don't have shoes on? 
How come there are people sleeping outside on your street because they're homeless? What about that? Yes, give to chair. Yes, give money. But money's not the only thing. Sacrifices aren't the only thing. What are you doing about the people right outside your door who, who are needy? But I guess my, my distinction is I thought they're saying cash fruit isn't important, for example, the profits. The important thing are these values where this extreme sect is saying uh, it is the cash fruit that is important. So, so, so some people are happy to, to agree with you and say they've just put one cult in place of another. Now they're calling it kashrut. Now they're calling it whatever. It's still the cult. It's the same thing. So, so yes, there are many people who would agree with that statement. What I'm saying is for the people who live that way, it is not a contradiction. It's not, it's not the same. For them, they're saying there is no temple cult. They take it literally. They take the prophets literally. Don't focus on the temple cult. Focus on how you live your life. They say that's exactly right. We're not focused on the temple cult anymore. We're focused on keeping Shabbos correctly. Okay. They don't see that as contradictory. I understand how we might be critical and say, what's the difference then? If really all you care about is what the hexer is on what you eat and not how you treat your community, that's no different than what the prophets are yelling and screaming about. They don't see it that way. Thank you. All right, David, and then I want to move on. As a final thought on this, is it fair to say, in your view, that Reconstructionism is modern-day prophecy? I think there's lots of different modern-day prophecies. Some of Reconstructionist teaching, yes, I would say is among it, among them. Yes. The good stuff. Yeah. Margo? I was just going to say this question keeps coming up as you're talking, and I think you've already answered it. But the thing that I keep thinking is, isn't it sad that nothing changes? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. So in that sense, in a literal sense. We agree with George that one set of things, rituals to focus on has replaced another, but it's not really changed at all, right? That we still are ignoring what the prophets were yelling and screaming about, right? So, so yes, I, and it's sad, yes. And, and think of Yitz Greenberg, you have to channel Yitz Greenberg here, um, that Torah accepts the world as it is and demands that we act to improve it and move it towards what it should be. So on the one hand, we could see that as seriously depressing, that nothing has really changed. On the other hand, Torah, our tradition understands that human beings are human beings. And and if we look at Torah times versus now, lots of things have changed, right? Like we don't stone people, you know, for all kinds of things that we used to stone, put them to death for, right? Things have evolved. It does evolve. Kaplan truly believed it evolves. We are an evolving religious civilization. Our job is to not lose hope that we can be influencers of that evolution and that that's our holy work in this world. That's, that's our main job in this world is to do that is to nudge our society in the ways that we can and the universe that we're in towards what it should be. That's all we can do because human beings aren't going to change. Human nature isn't going to change. 
But that doesn't have to be a source of only cynicism and depression, which is where I, t- I often go. Um, the tradition demands that we don't give up and that we don't, that we have to find the hope and the call, you know, to, to tikkun olam, to, you know, to improving this business and ourselves and our communities. That's really what we can do. That's all we can do, but that's huge if we can really focus on that. Um, but but the, the, the chore, right, is to draw our attention away from so much of the pretty shiny things that we're told we should have to be happy and successful, right? And to draw our attention back to what's important, which is what we're doing every single week um, sitting here. All right, I just want to share... And I know we're, we got to go, but I want to, I just love this and want to share a little bit of it with you because we're coming out of this whole idea of sacrifice. We're leaving it now because now we're going to go into stuff about the Mishkan. Um, so, so this is from Maurice Harris, his book called Leviticus. You have no idea. Um, and so he's talking here about the whole, this whole idea of, uh, of Leviticus. It focuses on eating, sex, family, work, rest, money, illness, birth, death, and basic social ethics. As a catalog of ancient rituals and taboos, it seems strange to us in our 21st century era. And yet, at its core, Leviticus sought to give the ancient Israelites a framework for living their daily lives with a sense of the sacred. It's a deeply personal, social, and spiritual handbook guiding an ancient people through the most embodied elements of their lives. As a religious progressive, there are values that Leviticus advocates that I object to, no doubt. But alongside my critical and evaluative response, I find the areas of human life that Leviticus addresses to be areas that we in the modern world struggle to handle with a deep sense of the sacred as we understand it. Our response has been to desacralize many of the aspects of human life that Leviticus regulates. The result has been that we've rightly objected to some of the misguided values that Leviticus imposed, but we've not replaced those values with new ones that would represent our generation's best effort to define how we can honor the sacred in these areas of our lives, eating, sex, work, rest, etc., In overturning Leviticus entirely, we've created a society in which we live with the absence of a shared sense of values and of the sacred in these areas of our lives. To some extent, that has opened the door to excess and moral extremes. I could not agree more. The refrigerator section at the supermarket really is a manifestation of a society that has lost all regard for the sacred involved in eating. Like when we talk about sacrifice, just go to the grocery store. There's dead animal lining the walls, right? Okay. As Jack Cohen put it, the modern world is not a pretty picture. Unprecedented violence, cruelty, satiety that breeds boredom, purposelessness, and all the other manifestations of social malaise and ennui that cast doubt on the quality and worthwhileness of human existence. Yet to respond by holding stubbornly to the past is futile. Leviticus challenges us to be better people in the routine, embodied, intimate aspects of our lives. The challenge is not for us to find a way to turn back the clock and re-embrace its beliefs and rules for all these areas of life, but rather for us to affirm what the authors of Leviticus noticed about life, namely that the daily embodied personal routines of life are imbued with sacred potential. Our task is to use the best insights and knowledge we have in our era to try to arrive at a set of values governing these aspects of our lives that affirm the sacred within us. 
Leviticus reminds us that freeing ourselves from the misjudgments of our ancestors in these areas is only part of the work. We still learn from Leviticus that these parts of our lives cry out for our attention. I just cannot find a more beautiful way to put what is powerful about Leviticus, um, what still is resonant about Leviticus, even though so many parts of it are not. It's that we have we have desacralized so much that where is the relationship between the sacred and the intimate experiences of our lives and 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 desacralizing turns out didn't do the trick right yes making those things into religious warfare excuses is terrible absolutely but desacralizing turned out to just make the whole thing not related to the concept of holiness and if you do that then why not have dead animals lining your grocery store? And who cares the conditions they live in? Who cares the conditions they die in? Who cares about the kids who can't get good nutrition and so don't grow up to be healthy adults? Who who cares? If there's no relationship to the sacred, sometimes the answer is, okay, then it doesn't really matter. I don't have to take it seriously. And and this is where Judaism pushes hard against um against some of our contemporary things that we've accepted as the way the world is and the way we want it to be and the way we're okay with. And, and I think Leviticus and our tradition continues to push to say, no, there should be a conversation about ethics when it comes to sex and sexuality. So you're a homosexual, who cares? That doesn't excuse a conversation about the sacred and how it relates to our relationships and our intimate relationships. You want to be in a thruple? You want to be three of you in a relationship? Fine. Shouldn't we still have a conversation about the sacred and how it relates to our behavior in that situation? Like, I just, I think to decouple them entirely, Harris is pointing out the incredible danger of that. Um, and that, you know, it, that it, it, it's, it's led to excess and amoral extremes. So um, our work is to keep meeting every week. Our work is to keep studying and to keep leaning in and to keep figuring out ways that these texts um, and these teachings um, do apply for us today. And Kaplan would charge us as Reconstructionists to take that mission seriously um, and to get about the work of reconstructing. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.